Support for this episode of This Changes Everything is provided by Primera Blue Cross. Jessica Henry is a tattoo artist based in Seattle. Naturally, she has a few tattoos herself. The very first tattoo I ever got when I was 18 was in Latin, and it's Ars Longa Vita Brevis, uh-huh. which Hippocrates said, and I know he's Greek. I was 18. I got it in Latin. I thought that <laughs> sounded cool. But Crosscut staff reporter Margot Vonsingle has spent a lot of time talking with Jessica recently. Um, it's Latin for art is long, life is short. So it's the whole idea that whatever mark you make on this world is going to outlast you. Jessica had just started working at a tattoo shop in Fremont late last year. But then the coronavirus. And just a couple of months later, the shop had to close. And so her life just changed, you know, in a a matter of a couple of weeks, it changed immensely. There's the whole thing where people are like, well, tattoos are so permanent. Well, you can't really say that once you've seen someone in a body bag with the most gorgeous full sleeve you've ever seen. And it's it's done now. No one's ever going to see it again. Pretty soon after the shutdown, Jessica found a very different job. A friend of hers worked in the death care industry, and they had an opening. And, you know, not too long after, she was sitting in a van doing her training to become a removal technician. Removal technician, that could be anything. What are you removing? What's, you know, what's technical about it? Which is the word in a death care industry for someone who um, goes into morgues and hospitals and people's homes to retrieve the bodies of of people who have died. It's a job you might not think much about if you don't work in the industry or adjacent to it somehow. But it is essential. It has to happen. So she has a a cot and she, you know, wheels that into the morgue or the hospital, you know, and, and, and private homes are a little different. Sometimes she has to go up tall stairs. And, and when she gets there, she has to, most of the time by herself, move the body onto the cot. It takes a lot of grace and strength, grace and brute strength at the same time. So we, we buckle them on the cot and then we cover them with a quilt. Just to make it not look uh, so industrial um, and so cold. You know, because we're not just going to roll someone's loved one out in a plastic bag. So cover them with a, a quilt. Uh, we also offer the option if the family wants to help us we absolutely let them um if they want a hand in in moving the person or they want to follow us out to the van or they want to help push the cot we let them because obviously they should be allowed to be a part of that process if they want Mm -hmm. if they want to be in the other room and they don't want any part of it whatsoever we're also there for that and we explain that to them too when we show up And so regardless if Jessica is picking up someone who's died at home or at a hospital, she loads them onto a cot, into the van, and then brings them to what's called a death care center. Uh, The best way I can explain it, this care center is kind of like death Costco. Uh, Because they have everything. Has like everything you need to run a funeral. Well, yeah. (laughs) Um, there's there's a lot of humor actually in the way she approaches some of these things, uh-huh. and I asked her about this, and she says, you know, it's a way of coping. Yeah. Um, sometimes you just have to kind of uh, laugh a little bit. I think if you're seeing death uh, day in day out, has like a big um, walk-in cooler where all the bodies are kept. It has a few crematories. It has a giant warehouse full of different caskets. It has a center for viewings in the front. One time, Jessica says, she happened to see a cremation in progress. It was just 
literally a human skeleton there engulfed in flames. It's one of the most incredible and terrifying things I've ever seen. You said human skeleton engulfed in flames. And I was yeah. thinking that sounds like a tattoo that probably a lot of people have, right? Honestly, I'm working on a design right now that is that exact thing. It was such a moving and striking image to me. I'm, I'm working on that exact drawing as we speak. <laughs> So this whole process, of course, however difficult to face, is what would happen anyway. We will all die someday. That hasn't changed. But what has changed recently, in addition to Jessica's line of work, is that a significant number of people are now dying from a highly infectious disease. Probably one in four people I have picked up is COVID positive. Oh, wow. Yeah. And that presents all kinds of new risks and therefore new challenges, from the logistical to the emotional. The coronavirus has caused a shocking amount of death. It's changed how we could die, but it's also changed what happens after we die. Her job kind of offers a glimpse into this thing that a lot of us don't think about, even even in pandemic times. Like, I don't think we were thinking about it before, but I think right now it was just not something that was getting a lot of attention. And so Jessica says she can joke about it, but she definitely feels the weight of it too. You know, there's a lot of emphasis in the news about what's happening, like on the front lines and that sort of thing, but we're not really talking about what happens after people pass. There's kind of like, once they become a number on the list of casualties, then all of a sudden, like, people's comprehension of that ends. Like, oh, we can't save them anymore, they're gone. But someone still has to move the person. You know, someone still has to safely, you know, and s sterilely transport them and get them to a place where they can rest and be treated with respect and it's it's just it's really really intense work it's super important i'm sarah bernard and this is this changes everything a podcast from crosscut about the new normal death defines life we will all grieve and we will all die someday but just like life is different now death is different now too there's no denying, of course, that what a global pandemic does is kill people. Some of us grieve the numbers, now at nearly 400,000 worldwide and roughly a quarter of those in the United States. But others have to face the reality of those numbers, the reality of loss. But loss in a time of social distancing, when we can't always gather, we can't always be there for one another. I asked Margot to help me understand Jessica's experience as a way to explore the part of the pandemic that is hardest to face. The part of the pandemic that really causes all the other parts. What's it like to be face-to-face -face with death every day? What's it like to risk your own health to serve the dead and their loved ones? And what can we learn from all this? Stay with us. Margot says normally Jessica and her colleagues wouldn't have a lot of information about the people they're picking up. Unless a family wants to tell stories about the person, which they definitely do sometimes, how people died, for example, was not that important. But it is now. Now with the pandemic, there's kind of a new kind of level of information, which is COVID positive or not. That's because even someone who's died from the coronavirus could impact the people who are still alive. So she has to wear an N95 mask um, at all times. We have a really rigorous disinfection process 
every single time we transport someone who's COVID positive. I mean, we clean the van every day, but this is like after every single trip. And, and she told me that sometimes she has to um, put a mask on, on people who have died as well. I mean, when you're moving someone who's passed, depending on how recently they passed, they can still like exhale particles into the air if there's air trapped in them. So we'll actually put a mask on the decedent if they're exposed to us. So we won't risk run the risk of moving them and having them exhale particles that we then inhale. But yeah, I've, I've been in close contact with um, a lot of bodies that have the virus, which is for sure scary and a little anxiety inducing. Yeah. I haven't, um, I mean, I've been doing this job for over a month now and I haven't exhibited any symptoms or anything like that, probably because we're all being super careful. And like I said, there are proper protocols in place to make sure that we don't get sick. Also, just navigating hospitals in general right now is really stressful. Okay. Um, you know, it used to kind of be a pretty quick pickup if you had to go get someone from a morgue. But now, rightfully so, they're screening everybody. There's um, heightened levels of security. I've heard stories from security guards of, like, family trying to sneak in the exits to visit their loved one who's dying because they are not allowed to go in, which, you know, who am I to, to judge that sort of behavior? But I understand the need for extra security. So it's definitely tense. There's something very new and very sad about the fact that people who are dying in hospitals with coronavirus are often dying alone, and that sometimes their families, desperate to see them, have to be escorted out by security guards. I think the coronavirus has made, has made grief lonelier in a way. One of the things Jessica does, though, is try to be present for that loneliness, to care for and console the people she encounters through her work. Death care, it's called. And, and so she says that, that her job often includes some kind of consolation. And it's not, you know, she's not a therapist, but, but people often talk about their loved one and they share anecdotes and stories with her. Um, and, and, and she takes that very, very seriously. Often I'm one of the first people on the scene, either after the first responders or after the hospice people leave. I'm, I'm there. I'm the one who consoles the family and, you know, gives them the direction and the information for our funeral director. And, you know, it's, it's a really delicate process. I mean, you want to be personable, but there's also a certain severity to the situation, you know, mm -hmm. and it's something that I didn't really know that I could do until I did it the first time. And then I realized, oh, I, maybe I can hold space for people like this. Maybe it's not that different from tattooing. You know, I'm, I'm in these people's life, lives for a really short time, but I'm able to support them through something really difficult. And in that way, it's similar, I suppose. And, and even if it's just explaining calmly, uh, empathically how things will go, um, that she, she finds that very important because in the end she says, you know, it's, you're, you're taking someone's loved one away forever. Um, that's, that's very hard. Usually they just need a little space to be allowed to grieve and they need someone 
to witness that and someone to be sorry for their loss and someone to understand the importance and the gravity of what's happening. But one of the difficulties of being a death care worker right now and trying to fulfill the care part is this required physical distance and the N95 mask. Prior to social distancing, of course, I mean, removal technicians were allowed to absolutely console someone, like, you know, give a hug in the right circumstance or, yeah, physical touch, touch them on the shoulder, you know, those sorts of things. And it's especially hard, too, to read people's body language and really be able to communicate with while wearing a mask. So Mm. not only is that level of physical touch completely removed from the situation, but to console someone and to have them be able to read you emotionally and like what you're saying and how you're saying it, I mean, it's completely different. Of course, the reason Jessica is doing this work is kind of because of the pandemic. So the work has changed, but it hasn't changed for her. I don't have a point of comparison because I've only done it this way, but it's for sure, it's not easy. So right now, a lot of people can't visit their loved ones who are dying in a hospital. And if they're interacting with any death care worker or other professional, they're talking six feet apart through a mask. And until recently, no one could even hold a funeral in person. Yeah, there, there are Zoom <laughs> funerals right now. You know, there are wakes that have to be held socially distant. Um, one of my good friends, her, her mother died and she could only invite just a couple of people to the funeral. And she will have to, she wants to do a kind of a wake or a ceremony later on, but she doesn't even know when she can do that. And, and it's, it's, you know, you definitely need to be around people when you're grieving or a lot of people do or, or grieve together. But we're finding new ways. The other day, I had um, I had a residential removal, and we never really know exactly what we're getting into until we arrive. And so I called my backup person, and I gave, and then I called the family and gave them an ETA, which is usually what we do when we get the call, and we try to get there in ninety minutes or less. And so I put the address in. I'm driving there, and and I turn the corner, and I pull around the corner. And I see, I'm going to cry because it was really moving. I see like maybe, maybe 40 or 50 people all lined up on the streets, all in groups six feet apart, wearing masks and holding calla lilies. And my, my heart just like stopped, like my breath caught in my chest. And I was like, oh, they're here for this person. And I immediately called my partner who has been doing this a lot longer than me. I was like, you need to get here. (laughs) I'm really nervous. 40 people are about to watch me back into this tiny driveway. (laughs) I better not screw it up. And she showed up and we got out. We talked to the family. And of course they were distraught. But they had given us a little bit of a longer ETA because everyone wanted to come say goodbye to this person. And they said they really appreciated us waiting because this is the closest thing to a funeral this person would get. And they let us borrow an heirloom quilt from the family, and they asked us to go as slow as we could so everyone could pay their respects. And so we took the person out, and we were very, very slow and graceful about it. And everyone was lined up with their masks and their flowers 
and we eventually got the person in the van and the family was so grateful and it was the most glorious beautiful bright Seattle day and all the flowers were just violently in bloom and I don't know if I've ever seen anything that beautiful or that sad at the same time but I held it together really well until I was in the van driving away and then I just lost it <laughs> normally I'm like pretty okay and I don't cry at work all the time usually wait until I'm off the clock to do that but I couldn't it was just really, really beautiful and heartbreaking at the same time. We'll get back to Margot and Jessica in just a minute. But first, a message from our sponsor, Primera Blue Cross. Primera Blue Cross was founded in Washington State. With offices in the Puget Sound area and Spokane, they know the profound impact the COVID-19 outbreak has had and will continue to have on our local communities. They joined the region's major employers who made the early decision to send employees home and help protect vulnerable family members, friends, and neighbors. The Primera team is in your corner and doing what they can to help during this health crisis. That includes covering COVID-19 tests and related office visits without out-of-pocket costs for most plan members. And they're working with the federal government toward free testing for all, regardless of health coverage. Primera has expanded virtual care options, too, so people in Washington can get their symptoms checked by a doctor without leaving their home or receive ongoing care, like mental health therapy. Primera is offering early prescription refills to make sure members have the medications they need at the ready. Mail order and 90-day refills are also available. Ask your pharmacist if you want to know more about your options. Primera continues to actively monitor the situation to find more ways they can help to stop the spread of COVID-19 and get treatment to those affected. Learn more about how your care is covered at Primera.com. Of course, Jessica's experience with death didn't start with her new job. It actually began really early on in life, in a very intense way. I first encountered uh, death directly when I was eight years old. Um, One of my good friends, who was also eight years old, got ran over by a dump truck right in front of my house. Mm. And I was the one who called 911. And I remember witnessing his death up front and up close. Mm-hmm. And I remember like seeing like the the tire tracks on his chest and his face turning blue, and it was very like intense. But I didn't react at all. I just immediately called, you know, nine one one and let an adult know. And then, of course, he didn't make it. And I remember going to his funeral, and that was I mean that was before even any of my grandparents died. So my first experience with death was one of my peers. And it was hard and it was harrowing, but I, it also just made me very curious. Like her first experience with death was, was one of her peers, you know, and I think that, that profoundly changes someone. I never had a hard time going to funerals or when my grandparents, when they all died, I, obviously I was upset, like I cried, but it wasn't, I felt like I'd experienced already, if, if that makes sense.
And partly because of that experience, Jessica has spent a lot of her life asking the bigger questions. In college, she studied philosophy. And that curiosity and deep reflection is present now in how she talks about her work. Something that's kind of, I guess, terrifying and also interesting about when people die is you can always tell how they felt uh, when they passed because their expression stays the same. And so I've seen people whose faces are just contorted in fear, their fists are clenched, they're afraid. And I've seen other people who look so peaceful and calm. And it's, it's such a grand scope um, of different expressions and different experiences. And, you know, there's not, there's not just one way everybody is, everybody handles it. Doing this work at any time, and especially during a pandemic, can be really, really hard. I definitely feel the weight of it. It feels heavy. Um, I'm grateful that I'm not removed from it. Um, I'm grateful that I get to experience what is happening, you know, at its most base level. And it's, it's essential work. I mean, somebody has to do this. And it's not ideal for most folks. <laughs> but I don't know, I definitely see it as a gift. I mean, I don't think a lot of people could do it. And, and that's also what she told me. She said that the turnover is really, really high in that job. Um, so most people is what she heard from her colleagues actually last about three weeks, you know, in non-pandemic times. Mm-hmm. Like from an emotional and a physical standpoint, it's pretty grueling. Right before she was hired, two of her colleagues of the you know, people doing that job quit. And at least one did it because of, of, you know, the added stresses of the job under um, coronavirus. And those stresses are no small thing. Working on the back end of the front lines, essentially, has made me feel very, um, it's been sobering, is what it has been. Mm -hmm. Um, It's made me recognize my own mortality and the absolute seriousness of the situation. If we all don't, do what we're supposed to do. But the idea of her own mortality, of everyone's mortality, that's what sticks with her. She definitely says that that it has profoundly changed her, you know, and she can't really go back, I think. So she's going to keep doing this job, even though um, when she can get back to the tattoo shop, she's going to do that part time, most likely, and then keep doing this job. It's a really crucial service you know, as far as to keep society functioning, like, what do we do with our dead? And someone has to, like, hold that space and move that person out and make so we can keep, like, living and keep functioning as a society. I mean, it's absolutely crucial. It's made me a lot more grateful for the connections that I have and the people who look out for me. And also just, you know, for people I care about in general and this life that we we get to lead. Even quarantine life is a gift. There's a concept that came up in conversation between Margot and Jessica, a term often used in art and philosophy. Memento mori. It's an object or image that can serve as a reminder of death, like a skull or a skeleton. And a reminder like that Anything that sparks the awareness of your own mortality can help you be more present, right here, right now. For Jessica, almost every day 
sometimes half a dozen or more times a day, is memento mori. And maybe a pandemic, when death is so present in some concrete or abstract way for all of us, can also be memento mori. A way to remember that life is short and fragile and precious. That, in the end, is what Jessica says she'll take away. I find death to be very comforting in that the fact that our lives are finite gives every moment we get to experience a greater level of depth and meaning. And also, you know, the fact that the intense suffering that all of us have to endure in this lifetime, it's not going to be forever. And it doesn't mean that I'm like rushing to like hurry my death. It just means that when the day comes, I'm going to be ready and it's going to be okay to be done. Honestly, I think this job I'm doing now has made me feel the most alive I've felt in a very long time. Thanks for listening to This Changes Everything. This episode was produced by me, Sarah Bernard, and the story editor was Mark Baumgarten, engineering assistance from Rusty Bacall. Our cover art is by Greg Cohen. The very biggest thanks this week to Margot Vonsingel, who did all the reporting for this story and all the audio recording and wrote a beautiful piece for Crosscut about Jessica Henry and the world she finds herself in. You can find a link to her story on the episode page. Read all of Margot's work at crosscut.com and all of the newsroom's coverage of the coronavirus at crosscut.com slash coronavirus. So Jessica is a pretty amazing human being and does find joy and strength in facing death every day. But yeah, it's not easy. Well, thank goodness I'm in therapy. I can do telehealth because that's been, that's been a lifesaver. Definitely been talking to my therapist about this job. When I first told her I was doing it, she was like, well, I'm going to need a minute to process this. <laughs> You can subscribe to This Changes Everything on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. And if you like the show, please do leave that review on Apple Podcasts. It really helps other people find us. For more on This Changes Everything and other Crosscut podcasts, go to crosscut.com podcasts. For the latest political, environmental, and culture news from the Pacific Northwest, visit crosscut.com. This Changes Everything is a product of Cascade Public Media. I'm Sarah Bernard. We'll be back soon with another episode.